You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Episode number 29 of that one time on tour is brought to you by Rockabilia.com. Rockabilia.com is your one-stop shop for everything band merch related. With over 500,000 unique items officially licensed by the bands, Rockabilia is the place to get your band merchandise. It's October. It's spooky outside. Make sure you go over to Rockabilia.com, get all your misfit stuff, all your AFI stuff. They have it. Don't go to Hot Topic. Don't go anywhere else. Go to Rock. Rockabilia.com and at checkout put in the promo code PCTOTOT and that's going to save you 15% on your entire order. So make sure to check out Rockabilia.com and tell them that Chris from that one time on tour sent you. Hey, this is Pete Parada from The Offspring and you're listening to that one time on tour. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. Hello and welcome to episode number 29 of that one time on tour. As always, I'm your host, Chris Swinney, back with another stellar conversation with somebody in or around the music industry. Last week was really cool with my buddy Randy from Pennywise. Thank you so much for checking that out. This week is no different. I get to sit down with Mr. Pete Parada from The Offspring. Pete also played in Face to Face and Saves the Day, two other bands that I just thoroughly love and enjoy. So uh, we had a really good conversation. I can't wait you guys to hear it. He also played on Rob Halford's solo project. He played with Devo. I mean, the guy's been around. It's a really cool conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy that. Before we get into that, I need to tell you about some sponsors. Uh, Merge 4 Socks. They're still on as a sponsor. They're awesome. Check out their socks. Merge4.com. Past guest of the show, Wee Man has his own socks. Steve Caballero. They have Sublime Socks. Circle Jerk Socks. They're really, really cool. You need to check them out at Merge4.com. Sticker Wolf is still on. I love Sticker 
Wolf. They've hooked the show up with a lot of really cool stuff. They did our logo. They've done stickers for the show. Stickerwolf.com and Stickerwolf on all of the social media platforms. So make sure you're checking them out as well. Make sure that you are checking us out also on the social media platforms. It's at T-O-T-O-T podcast. If you want to become a sponsor, I had a band sponsor fall through for the last two episodes, but no fear. We're going to keep going. But if you do want to be a band sponsor or if you have a cool company or whatever, hit me up. It's T-O-T-O-T podcast at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. Call the hotline. Nobody's called the hotline for a while. It's been a couple weeks since I've had a new call. I'm, I'm really upset about that. So call the hotline. It's one seven six five three seven two eight eight one eight, And that's about all of the business. So I, I've been a little under the weather. I've been coughing quite a bit. I've got a cough drop in right now. I'm hoping that it's going to go away soon. So if I sound a little bit weird, it's because I'm under the weather. But uh, things are going really well here. Uh, my daughter, Indy, turned one a couple days ago. And uh, today, actually, it's 12.09. So yeah, it's 12.09 on the 24th. I am 40. This is my birthday. So thank you for checking out my birthday episode of that one time on tour. So it's been going really well, and I appreciate all you guys listening. I can't wait to keep on going. I've got some great guests coming up in the future, and I'm really excited for uh, the Speak and Destroy that one time on tour crossover episode. So if you don't know what Speak and Destroy is, Google it. It's really cool. My buddy Ryan does a Metallica podcast, and uh, we're going to do a little crossover episode. So I'm going to get right into my conversation with Pete Parada from The Offspring. I do want to tell you guys, man, he recorded Ignorance is Bliss, which is my favorite face-to-face record. A lot of people look at me weird when I say that because it's the album that you know the fans kind of didn't really dig because it was a different direction. I love all the punk stuff, but it was a little bit different. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. You'll hear it in the conversation, but I urge you guys to go out and check out some of the stuff Pete's done. If you're not familiar, you guys all know who The Offspring is, but go out and check out Face to Face. Go out and check out the stuff he did with Saves the Day. And uh, that's it. So I'm going to jump right into my conversation. Thank you guys so much for listening and catch me at the end of the conversation with the outro. So I'll see you guys soon. Thanks a lot. So I'm on the line with Pete Parada from The Offspring. How are you doing today, Pete? I'm doing great, dude. Good to hear from you. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So what I like to do with my guests at the beginning, we're going to talk about a lot of cool stuff today, but I want you to take me back to that first time that you really thought music was something that spoke to you and you were passionate about music. Oh, man. All right. You can go as far back as you want to. Yeah, it would go pretty far back. I was always really drawn to to music, but usually like kind of darker stuff. Um, Like I think my early memory is like Judas Priest, Defenders of the Faith. Like that was my favorite record for a long time. I was probably in like, I don't know, what, third or fourth grade. That's crazy. (laughs) That's pretty progressive for third and fourth grade. Yeah, well, I grew up in upstate New York where there, you know, there's not a lot going on where I was. And uh, so once MTV hit and you had videos and stuff and you could see all these bands, it really opened my mind up to all different kinds of music. Um, So I but I was drawn right away to like heavy metal. So it was all like or you know, hard rock, whatever, Def Leppard and Dokken and Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Like I was just kind of drawn into all of it. Um, I tended to like stuff that was a little darker, a lot of minor key stuff. My dad used to joke and call me Dr. Death. (laughs) Awesome, man. Thought everything I liked was kind of morbid, but you know, you look back on a lot of those records now and it's pretty tame. It's pretty tame considering what's out now. Yeah, that's true. 
absolutely. So uh, did you have like a musical family or were you like the first one that started doing stuff? Uh, my dad was a music teacher. So um, everybody like I have two older brothers and they both played. Um, my oldest brother played the clarinet. And my other brother played the saxophone. And so when I came along as the youngest, I knew like, oh, man, my dad's a music teacher. He didn't teach at our school. He taught in the next town over. But I was like, I'm going to have to learn to play something. And I I didn't like that they had all these fingerings and things that they were working on. And I was like, you know what? I, I like the drums. I'm going to play the drums. That way I can get out of learning any of these like fingerings on a saxophone or a woodwind or, you know, a brass instrument. And so it just kind of went from there. I think it probably was born out of a little bit of like I'm too lazy to do that or that doesn't look like fun, but this looks like fun. I can hit things. Did you get like right into like rudiments and like really studying the drums or was it more of like just playing songs that you liked? Back then it was rudiments and stuff. Like, you know, I think you had to start an instrument your summer between third and fourth grade um, where I was. So I had drum lessons with the music teacher at my school throughout the summer, like once a week. And Um, so I just had one of those little practice pads and a pair of sticks and the rudiment book. And, you know, we worked through that and then I would join, I joined the elementary elementary, uh, uh, orchestral band. Right. Um, and so, you know, a bunch of fourth graders playing their instruments for the first time, it was not like sonic beauty (laughs) or anything, but, um, I, I liked it and I was kind of drawn to it. And I, I realized that that I could, um, I could sight read music. Okay. Kind of naturally, like we we did a lesson on six, eight and I didn't, I didn't practice that week. And I came in and kind of had to like make it up as I went along, but the way that the the rhythms were laid out, it made sense to me. That's that's awesome. And time signatures when you're that young can be a real, a real struggle. I teach guitar for a living. And a lot of the kids that I teach, we try to clap along to the timing and, and that's, that is not an easy thing to, to grasp. Yeah, it, it was funky. Like, and I, I was kind of shocked because I'm like, wow, is any of this right? And the teacher was like, yeah, actually, you're getting 90% of this right. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, I think he thought I had been practicing or whatever. And I was just sort of making it up as we went along. But um, so, yeah, I started doing, you know, the school band through there. And then when I was in sixth grade, at the end of sixth grade, my dad got me a drum set. And um, so it was like a Yamaha five piece kit. And it's the only drum set that I've ever had that I don't still have. And I regret that terribly. Um, I know who has it. And uh, if they want to sell it back, I'm ready. Um, (laughs) I've sold all my guitars, man. And I I get really upset about it. I had some nice ones that I let go of when I was first starting out. So, yeah, I I feel your pain, man. Hurts. Yeah. And especially that one, like my dad gave it to me. And I sold it to upgrade to a bigger drum set that was actually a much worse drum set. But it was. (laughs) And of course, I still have that one. But, you know, like I said, I know the guy that has the drums now and my stepmom sees him every once in a while. And she always asks him, like, you ready? You ready to give those drums back? (laughs) (laughs) So you fell into this thing that a lot of my first drummers when I was growing up fell into. They saw Lars with like a million toms and they went out and bought the biggest kit they could buy. Yes, exactly. I had a, a, you know, two, two rack toms and a floor tom and a snare. And then I added a second kick drum a few years later, but then like that course wasn't enough. And me being an idiot, I sold my really nice maple, you know, Yamaha kit to get a super giant nine piece Ludwig poplar, terrible drum kit, but it was 
know, bigger bass drums and more toms and must be better. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely, man. (laughs) Bigger is not always better, but I know what you're saying. (laughs) So uh, when you got into like high school, you were still playing drums. What was like your first foray into actually playing music like with a band that's not like, you know, written out like sight reading music? Oh, yeah, this is kind of hilarious. So I'm I'm from a really small town, like there's maybe a thousand people there. And I had like 23 kids in my class in school. Like it's very, very small. And this other kid moved to town who was actually a pretty decent guitar player. And I was was probably like eighth grade. And um, I was the only kid in town with a drum set. So the this guitar player kid and another kid from town just basically you know talked to me in the hallway at school one day like you know and it felt like one of those oh yeah we'll do that sometime and they showed up at my house that weekend with their amps and their guitars like okay we're here to play we're gonna make a band and we just kind of went down in the basement and started making noise and i think my parents were kind of like i didn't know this was happening today (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so yeah we we put together our our first band was me and two guitar players. We had no bass player because no one played bass in town. And then we had one of the guys in from like the choir group was our singer. And uh, we were we were god awful for sure. Like we played like, you know, Wild Thing and Clapton's Cocaine and, you know, Rocky Like a Hurricane and stuff like that. Um, we were pretty bad. I still have have our first concert on videotape. It's really good blackmail footage. What was the name of that band? Did you guys have a name? I think by the time, because we did a gig at our school, and uh, I think by the time we had to have a name, we picked Black Velvet. Black Velvet. Okay, cool. Probably like 88. Yeah. Eight. Was, it um, at, was it after that Alana Miles song, Black Velvet? No, I think um, someone's... One of our parents, I don't think it was my parents, but someone, someone's mom had a, a bottle of black velvet. It was a whiskey or some kind of a liquor back then. And, and we just saw the name. I think we even ripped off the logo from the liquor bottle. <laughs> That's and cool, man. <laughs> t-shirts out of it and stuff. Yeah, it was we were bad. I think by the time we played our show, we knew eight songs, which didn't take very long to plow through. And then so then we just kind of asked kids like, well, which songs did you like best? We'll play them again. There's <laughs> <laughs> so nothing wrong with that, man. I was playing in uh, after I left the Ataris, I was working uh, this entertainment company down south and I was playing in a cover band on the weekends to make extra money. And we had to play three hours a night and we only knew like 20 songs. So we would all, always like, man, if you saw the first set, don't come back for the last set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to recycle the, our greatest hits. Oh, yeah. So when I was I was looking at uh, stuff about you, I was doing some research. And one thing that I found very interesting is that you went to the Musicians Institute in Hollywood. Was that directly after high school? Yeah. Yeah. I graduated high school in uh, 91 and took off a month later for L.A., which was terrifying. Um, I moved with a friend of mine who was a year older than me. And he was he is a fantastic drummer. And he's the reason that I really started practicing. Like when I was a kid, you know, I would watch people play on MTV and and be like, Oh man, I could never do that. And whatever. And another buddy of mine dragged me out to see the band from the, the big town next door where there was 10,000 people versus our 1000. And the drummer was this kid who was just shredding. He was playing like everyone I watched on MTV. And like the next day I just went home and started practicing. Cause he, he seeing him had erased the stigma in my brain or the block that you know, I could never do that. And all of a sudden it was like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And then come to find out he was one of my dad's students 
And my dad had known about him the whole time, had never mentioned him to me. And I was just like, come on, dude. And he's like, well, you didn't seem very serious. So, you know. and so then after then that I just started practicing and that was, that was my goal. I was like, well, I'm going to, if he can do it, I can do it. And so we got to be buddies and he started MI a year before me because he graduated a year uh, before I did. And he, he did six months and then came home for the summer and then was going back. And I had gotten accepted to the school and uh, so we drove back across country together. So I knew one person in all of L.A. And I, you know, I went from a town of a thousand people to living right off of Hollywood Boulevard and just fearing for my life every day. Or it took a couple of weeks for me to just mellow out and be like, OK, I'm not going to get murdered every time I go outside. This is all right. So what did uh, what did it mean to you to be at the Music- Musicians Institute? And did it do you feel like that really helped your your skill at the drums? I, I, I know that's kind of a loaded question. A lot of people, you know, they're not taught, you know, traditionally. A lot of drummers that I know have never even played a rudiment before. So how how did that whole situation go? And did you like it? For me, it was the best experience ever. It, it, it At the time, it's a very different school now from what I understand. Um, in the early 90s, before it got bought by the uh, ESP guitar company, and then they started making you take college courses. When I went through, it was just a performing arts school. It was just, you just went in and you worked on music and that was it. You didn't have to worry about anything else. You weren't going to get any kind of a degree or a diploma that would matter in the world, but it was the kind of place that you got out of it, what you put into it. And that's, that's how I like to operate, you know, just kind of like on my own working through everything, like I can do that. So for me, it was awesome. Um, I, I was not great when I got there for sure. Like even my intake interview, I was just, I heard other people in there, you know, I barely had ever played jazz. Like I picked it up the summer that I was graduating and I was, you know, awful at it, like going to fall over on the stool trying to play the basic jazz pattern. But I poured everything I had into every day that that school or that I was at that school. And the teachers there were amazing. And I had a couple of really great ones take me under their wing and, you know, bless their heart. They saw some kind of a, a hope in there and it just felt bad for me. But um, this uh probably my favorite teacher there was this guy, Fred Dinkins. Amazing. Um, he came from more of a gospel R and B background, but he could play anything. And he was, he would bust my ass in the best way. He would just, you know, he would not give up on me. He was every week. Like he did, he had an open hour, um, someday one week. And he was like, you know what, I'm going to see you for half an hour every Thursday at this time, you're going to come and see me on -on one-on-one just like out of the goodness of his heart. And really busted my chops. Uh, was it was it like that movie Whiplash at all? No, no. In the past, like, I, I I hate that movie. So do I. <laughs> I I think it's ridiculous. I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't know any drummers that are like, oh man, that's so realistic. Like, I I don't believe in motivating anyone with <laughs> sheer terror. Yeah. And physical abuse. I I think that's preposterous. So I I. But he was great. Like he was busting my chops. Like pushing me in a way that was, you know, constructive and healthy and amazing. And he, he made me a much better, better drummer just from, you know, and he didn't have to do any of that. It wasn't part of my tuition. It was like, he just said, Hey, I have this time free. You're going to come in and and I'm going to, I'm going to work you over. And it was awesome. So like, he really encouraged me and inspired me to get better. Um, and then towards the end of 
before I was graduating, they started doing more like hard rock and metal stuff. And so the drummer that they brought in to teach the class um, had just gone through the school like two years before, and it was Ray Luzier. Okay. And Corn now, and he's played with David Lee Roth and all these people over the years. And uh, he blew my mind. I'd never seen anyone play like him. And we hit it off and got to be buddies. So when I graduated, I ended up moving into his apartment. And we were roommates for about three years. And we worked in the same like mail room at this fan club office upstairs from where we lived and just kind of, you know, piecing, uh, piecing rent together and trying to get in bands and get gigs. And he would kick me down stuff that he was too busy for. Um, and I, you know, we just have always gotten along really well. And it's funny, I, I moved from California to Tennessee seven years ago and uh, about two years after I moved here, he moved here. And so now we're neighbors again. He lives about five minutes from me. That's awesome. So yeah, 20 plus years later, we went from roommates to neighbors and, you know, um, so he's, he's been just a great friend since we met, you know, in what, 93, 92, 93. Can you tell me about like what it is about Nashville? Because I just, I just had Jack from Bayside on the show. I've had a bunch of people on the show that are in these kind of, you know, like, punk bands or, or sort of punk bands and they all end up kind of migrating to Nashville. It's almost like a new Nashville. Is that how it feels down there? It is. When we got here, um, it wasn't that like we moved here in 2011 and I'd been living up in Northern California where my wife is from and we had two small daughters and I had gotten the offspring gig and, um, we'd, I'd been doing that for a few years and we were thinking of like, we wanted to get out of her town and move back to LA, but we didn't want to raise our girls there. You know, I'd spent 15 years there and, and it just, and so she was like, well, why don't we look at Nashville? Cause I had a friend that I grew up with who lived here and he kept saying like, Hey, you got to come check it out. You got to come check it out. And it's, I think a lot of it for musicians is obviously it's a musical town and there's tons of stuff going on here, but the cost of living in Tennessee versus anywhere in California is just, it's half. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, my house here, we found a house with a basement in it and I put in a, a drum studio that, you know, soundproof and, and, uh, you know, I can record, I can make videos, uh, teach lessons, you know, work with my kids They They both work on music and we record it here. Like I could never have this anywhere in California. It's just too expensive. So when we got here, we didn't know it was about to be the new cool it city. Yeah. It's like, Hey, that seems like a musical town where, we can actually afford to live. Um, let's go there. And, uh, and then, you know, two years later, everybody was moving here and it just blew up because everybody figured out the same thing it was like, Oh, I can get a house down there with some land. And, you know, there's music going on everywhere every night. It's crazy. Yeah. So, I, I live in Indiana and, uh, you know, when bands would come through that I knew, like I remember one time the thrice guys came through and, and I was telling them about the house I just bought and they were freaking out cause you know, they're from Irvine. So, oh, yeah. so they just didn't understand. It's like, wait a minute, you bought a house for like 80 grand and it's a nice house. <laughs> yep. That's the thing. It's location, 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 right? But yeah. And I know that, uh, Trevor from face to face, which is another band that you were in, he's living in Nashville too, is right? He was here. I think they, they moved to Nevada, but yeah, he was here when I moved here. Cause I called him and I said, Hey, you're in Nashville. Tell me about it. And he's like, man, everybody keeps calling me to ask about this. His wife uh, was actually our realtor when we bought our house here. Wow. 
like that's, that's know, awesome small world i was like hey we're gonna come down and visit and we went to visit with them and she's like hey i just got my realtor's license if you guys want to look at some houses and and we found this place that had you know a, this big unfinished basement space where we could put in the studio and was like all right great that works <laughs> that's cool man so that that'll that'll segue into this. So uh, in 1998, you joined face to face. Now, was that like the first sort of like bigger project that you were a part of? Yeah, for sure. That was my first real like this band has made put out a record on a on a major label kind of thing. Um, before that, I had done some small projects and, you know, I had done some small tours with people. But that was the first like, OK, this is a this is a gig where I'm going to record and I'm going to go on tour and you know, there's, there's something happening here. So that, that was really cool for me. And, you know, I just sort of fell into that by accident. They were auditioning drummers at the rehearsal studio where I'd been working. And, um, so they were just going through all these people cause they were trying to, I didn't know at the time they were, and I didn't know anything about punk rock. So they were looking to make more of a rock record, like more, I think they were just kind of burnt out on what they had been doing. And so they were looking for more of like a Dave Grohl, like a heavy rock guy. Um, but that someone who could also do the punk rock stuff. And, you know, so we just sort of clicked and it worked out, you know, that they, they couldn't find anybody there, but I'm, I'm the guy cleaning toilets and parking car. And, uh, um, and you guys recorded your first record with them was ignorance is bliss, which kind of, echoes what you were just saying about a more rock sound. I know a lot of the hardcore face-to-face fans kind of dismiss that record, but I love that record. I think that's my favorite record they've put out. Yeah, they didn't just dismiss it. They took a dump on it, set it on fire, and, uh, you know, flipped it off. Uh, but everyone, like, people hated that record. And we we kind of knew while we were making it that it was going to be controversial, and we tried, we really toyed with the idea of, putting it out under a different name and having it be like more of a side project, just like a, Hey, we're going to blow off steam and make this record, uh, under a different name. And then we got talked out of that by management and record company people that were like, no, the only thing we're going to sell records with is the fan base you already have. But it, so it was kind of ahead of its time musically for sure. But even the idea of doing a side project, people didn't do that back then. Now, you know, everybody does it all the time. They get to get their, you know, other musical ideas out without, you know, bastardizing their fan base and upsetting everyone. But so, you know, maybe it would have gone differently if we, you know, had just put it out under something else and then went back and made a a face to face record. But, you know, it's not what happened. And (laughs) I think I think it's a great record, man. I mean, I'm I was punk rock as they come. That's all I listened to. And that's why I was into face to face. But when I got that record, like I also loved grunge and, you know, 90s, like pop rock and like all that stuff. So when I heard that, I mean, I just think it was great. And I think people have come around now, at least friends of mine that maybe dismissed it. I know they love it now. That's the thing. Yeah, it's aged really well. I mean, if you listen to it, even sonically, it's not dated to a period like Chad Blinman, the engineer and producer on that was, was amazing. And he was, you know, he was working with stuff we'd never done before, like a lot of big room sounds and ribbon mics and compression. And I mean, we used, I think, four different drum sets on that record. Like it was a really laid back recording process. It wasn't like run in, do all the drums in two days. And then, you know, we were there camped out in the studio for a couple months and it was like us in one room and then Guns N' Roses was across the hall in the other room. Wow. 
do in Chinese democracy. And, um, but it was really cool. And for me, it was my first real big recording experience. So I was, you know, equal parts terrified and pumped. Um, but it, for me, like the songs they were writing, the music they were doing was right up my alley. It was like, Oh, okay. And then the punk rock stuff for me was, it just seemed like metal. I'm like, okay, you're, you're playing fast metal beats just with one foot. Okay. I got that. No problem. Like it, it just made sense. Um, when we were working together. And so I, I love that record. And, and I always have people, everybody now is like, Oh man, that's my favorite one. That's my favorite one. Boy, I hated it when it came out. And that was a brutal one to tour on. Like we would have guys literally in the front row. And every time we played a song off of that, they were either fake playing a violin on their shoulder or they were, there was like this two handed salute that we would get with one hand was a thumbs down. And the other one was the middle finger right next to it. <laughs> the point where we really toyed with that, imagery of like we should just make a t-shirt of that or like that was going to be our logo for trevor's record label or you know we just threw around all kinds of ideas like that that seemed to be a, a constant symbol on that tour was so when you you ended up joining saves the day in 2002 uh was there bad blood with face to face that how did that all come about when you joined saves the day no saves the day thing was was funny because you know, face to face at certain times, it was a, it was a volatile band. Like we all got along and I still love Scott and Trevor. Like I, I talk to them a lot. I see them whenever I can and there, there's no bad blood there, but it felt at times as if the band had run its course and Trevor would sometimes be like, Hey, I think, I think we're about done. Or I think this will be the last record, you know, start planning on what you want to do next. Like he was cool. He was like, Hey, just heads up. I think I'm going to put this to bed or I think we should. And, uh, so in 2001, I went out on tour with Alkaline Trio cause, um, they had parted ways with their drummer and, but they had a month long tour opening for Blink-182 and, uh, and they were my favorite band cause we took them out on a couple tours with face to face. And I was like, Oh my God, I love these guys. And they were like, Hey, do you want to come out and do this tour? And I was like, yeah, I think that'll be great. Cause I, we're wrapping things up here anyway. I can transition over to my favorite band. It'll be great. And, you know, while I'm out on that tour, Trevor's like, you know, what? I think we got to do one more record. We can't just leave it where it is. I want to I want to put a, you know, a stamp on the end of the band and round round everything out. He's like, you got to come. We need you to come back. And I was like, all right. So, you know, I did the one tour with them and then they end up getting Derek Grant, who was perfect for them in every. Um, so I was stoked for that. Like sad for me at first, but it made sense. And so a year later, you know, we had made the final face-to-face record and we told everyone this is the last one and we were wrapping things up. And we went to Europe in the summer of 2002 and we just had the worst European tour ever, like horrible gigs. These clubs were just shit boxes. Like sometimes nobody was there or sometimes like the conditions were just awful. And it was really kind of a depressing run. And so on the way home... Um, from the tour, Trevor was like, Hey, you know, I think we're probably going to, you know, be done here. You know, what do you think you want to do next? And I had filled in for saves the day, um, like six months before, cause their drummer quit abruptly and they had a, a show when the very first Xbox was launching. And so I, you know, I was the kind of the guy at vagrant records. That's like, Hey, we need a drummer go sit in. Okay, cool. And I enjoyed playing with them. Like musically, it made sense. 
And, you know, we had kept in touch. They, there was a couple other things where they were like, Hey, we're going out with Weezer. Can you do the tour? And I'd be like, no, it overlaps by a week with a face-to-face tour, you know? So I was like, well, saves a day keeps calling me. I'd be interested in doing that. And he said, you know what? You should, as soon as we get home, you should call Chris Conley, tell him, you know, you're in, you know, we're going to be done and go join the band. And I was like, all right, cool. So I did. And I got back and started doing that. And we still had face-to-face stuff to um, finish up. So I started just basically being on the road nonstop with both bands. Um, I, you know, I'd go from a face-to-face tour two days or like a day or two later, I'd be starting a saves the day tour kind of thing. And is that um, what I, I read on your website? It said that you played seven shows in one weekend over in, over in England. Yeah. When I first joined saves the day, all the vagrant bands, the vagrant records bands were booked at Reading and Leeds. And Vagrant was doing this big showcase for their label. So it was like face-to-face, Alkaline Trio, Dashboard Confessional, Saves the Day. Um, I think Get Up Kids were there. Yeah, every, everybody from the label was there. And so the shows were booked. And then I joined Saves the Day and was like, okay, cool. I'm going to have to play with both bands. So we did, you know, it was like a Saturday or a Saturday, Sunday, Monday kind of thing. So on Saturday at Reading, I played set with face to face, you know, the next set was saves the day. So I just did two sets in a row. Same thing on Sunday at Leeds Monday night, there was a vagrant records showcase at a club in London. And, but then we also got invited to open for Foo Fighters in London that night. Cause uh, Scott from face to face, his brother, Chris was their guitar player. So we couldn't turn that down. So then it went from that Monday night, we were opening for Foo Fighters across town, ran back over to the Vagrant Showcase. I sat and did another face-to-face set, and then I sat right back down and played a Saves the Day set. So it was like seven shows in three days. <laughs> That's crazy, man. Yeah, and then that was how it all started. And then it was just a lot of juggling for a couple of years. But I liked that because I, I liked being on tour. Like, you know, I didn't have any family or anything that I was dealing with. It was just, I was just me. So I was out on tour a lot and recording. And, you know, I think at some point there was a bit of a tug from the face to face side to be like, Hey, um, uh, we changed our minds again. Like you got to come back. And I, at that point I just said, no, I was like, I'll do both bands, but I'm not going to quit. Saves the day. Just come back to this. Cause we just keep coming back around to this same scenario of, um, Hey, we're going to wrap things up. What do you want to do next? And so I kind of had to put my foot down and say, I'm not, I'm not going to quit either band. I'll keep doing both, you know, we'll work it out schedule wise. And that's what we did up through the face to face. We did our farewell tour in 2004. Um, and then that was, you know, we kind of dissolved the band at that point. And then I was just doing saves the day up until early 2007 when that situation just became untenable. I could, there was a lot of personality conflict going on at that point in the band. And I just had to kind of take myself out of it. Um, and that was probably four months before the offspring gig came along. Before I, before we jump into the offspring thing, I, you mentioned Chris Shiflett and Scott, his brother that plays bass and face to face. Now I saw, uh, on Wikipedia, I don't know if it's true or not. You played in Jackson United with Chris. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Me and Scott did that record with Chris. I think was, I think that was 2002. Um, Chris was like, Hey, I want to do a solo record. Um, do you guys want to, he's like, I want you to be the rhythm section on it. And you know, me and Scott work really well together. Like we 
kind of kind of had a after playing so many shows all those years we kind of had a shorthand where we knew what each other was going to do and chris's songs were really cool like it was big it was a lot of like big rock straight up stuff but then it was a lot of alice there's like alice cooper mixture in there and and some pop stuff and really interesting stuff so we tracked like 23 songs he had written a whole ton of songs and uh, excuse me we went in and tracked a bass and drums in like two and a half days and chris finished the finished them all up and then we put out an ep and then a, a full record and um and we did like a record release show in hollywood and then when chris he also plays in me first in the gimme gimmies and so in 2003 they were on warp tour and face to face was on warp tour so during the two weeks that he was out there with gimme gimmies we did on one of those small side stages we did some jackson shows that's awesome man yeah but that was that was a great experience for me again because we worked with the same engineer producer chad blindman that did all the face-to-face stuff i played on and he's so easy and mellow and laid back to work with that it made the whole process really fun really really easy i mean we blew through it pretty quick a lot of first takes um you know i the last song on the record or one of the last things recorded was um, with brushes and i'd never really done a lot of work with brushes before so i was really proud of the that song it's got an interesting little weird like splashing hi-hat and kick drum and uh and brushes on the snare drum thing going on um so it was it was cool we we kind of touched on a lot of different musical styles in in a short amount of time uh but it was a lot of fun i'm I'm still really stoked on on the music that we made there and i hit up chris and scott a couple years ago i was like hey i've got my own studio here now like let's write some songs and you know, I'll track the drums. I'll send them out to you. And everybody's just busy doing their own stuff. Because face to face is playing again, right? They're, I mean, they're like full force going for it. Absolutely. Yeah, they they reformed in 2008. And I had joined Offspring in 2007. Um, and so we were just about to drop a uh, start an album cycle with Offspring. And they and face to face called and said, hey, we're going to just do this one show for surf and skate fest. And, uh, um, can you come and do it? And I was, it was, you know, offspring didn't have any shows booked, but my wife was pregnant with our second daughter and their show was scheduled to be right on her due date. And I was like, no, I, I, you know, I just can't like, if it was a different time, like a couple weeks sooner, whatever. But I was like, I can't, I'm not going to miss you know, her birth. And they were like, Oh, it's fine. If, if Sarah goes into labor, we'll just, you know, you can take off. And I was like, no, it won't be. You guys will handcuff me to the drum set and make me finish the set. I was like, I'm just not going to do it. Like, so they got, um, this amazing drummer, Danny, and he's been with them now longer than I ever was. I was there for about six and a half years and he's been there for 10 now. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I think, you know, everything worked out how it, how it should. And, and, uh, but you know, I love those guys. Every time I see them, we have a good time. And I happened to be in Dallas on a night off a couple of years ago when face to face was playing. So I went down to see them and, and I sat in on a couple songs and, um, we played one of the first song off ignorance is bliss and which they never play any of those songs live. So it was fun to bust out one of those. And, and then we played another one of the, um, songs off of the last record we did together. And, you know, I, it's, it's an easy friendship with those guys. Every time we get back together, we just sort of like an old shoe, like it just fits and everyone gets along and it's, it's a, uh, it's nice. You know, we've got a lot of history together for sure, but 
um, everybody's in a good place. So. I wanted to ask you before we get into the Osprey thing, because I'm trying, I'm trying to go chronologically. I'm kind of, I'm kind of OCD, but uh, I saw, and this kind of harkens back to what you were talking about when you were in third and fourth grade. You actually played on a Halford song with Bruce Dickinson singing with Rob Halford. Is that correct? The one that you love to hate? Yeah. Yep. I was when we after Ignorance Is Bliss um, pissed everyone off. We were going back in to rehearsal to write a, a new record that ended up becoming reactionary, but it was like, well, we got to get something more punk rock going. Like this is, this is a career killer and, uh, we need to get something out. So at the same time we, so we rehearsed back where I used to work. And at the same time, Rob Halford was in there with a buddy of mine that I'd known forever since my early nineties, like one of my first bands, like we always played or play rehearse next to his band. Uh, so Pat Lockman was playing guitar and he was like, Hey, we need someone to play drums right now. We're just writing songs for, it's going to be Rob's solo record. He's going to, you know, be Rob Halford band or whatever. And I was like, fuck yeah, well, I want to play with Rob Halford. So it was just me and Pat and then, um, a metal Mike, the other guitar player in the band and Rob, and we would just come in every morning from like 11 to three and we'd work on all these songs that ended up becoming his solo record. And then from like four until nine at night, face to face would come in and I would just, you know, move my drums over to the other room down the hall and then rehearse with them for the rest of the day. We're writing that record. So it was it was kind of gnarly because it was it was strenuous and kind of stressful. But I couldn't say no to playing with my one of my heroes, you know. And unfortunately, when it came time to do the record, it was everybody was recording at the same time. And I knew that I couldn't give the attention to Rob's record that he deserved and get the face to face record, you know, the, the same kind of care. So I had to bow out of recording his album and and uh, and they brought in Bobby Jarzombek, who's amazing. And, uh, you know, so it's a great record and it's all the same songs that I helped them write. And a couple months later, Rob called me up and he said, Hey, he goes, you work so hard on this. I really want you to be a part of it. Uh, I have one more song that we're, I just wrote and it's going to be a duet with me and Bruce Dickinson. Would you like to come and record the drums on it? Well, that's crazy, man. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, yes, I, yes, yes. I want to do that. So, you know, it ended up just being a one day thing. You know, he sent me like a demo of it and uh, we went in the studio there and somewhere in North Hollywood and we just kind of pounded it out in a day. And, you know, I never met Bruce during the process or anything because um, I just did the drums and then they went and finished it all elsewhere. But I was just really excited that I, at least I got to be on one song. And, and to me, like that song was so special because it's like, here's these two guys that I grew up idolizing and I'm on the same song with both of them. And uh, I had met Bruce years later because he had a BBC radio show. And face to face was in England and he did it. He interviewed the band. And so I got to see him there and be like, Hey, I played drums on that song with Rob. And he was like, Oh man, that's so cool. <laughs> and then we seem to see Iron Maiden a lot now with offspring and you know, our singer Dexter as a, as a pilot, he loves to fly. And Bruce is obviously a, a huge plane nut. So every time we see them, him and Dexter will go and sit and talk about planes and stuff. It's just kind of surreal. It's, it's very surreal, man. Like I, I met those guys one time and, uh, they, they were the nicest guys ever, but I can't imagine like being friends with them or, or being that friendly with them. Uh, they're super sweet. Yeah. And we did, um, 
the Rock'em Ring with Iron Maiden, I don't know, like five or six years ago now. And so their stuff was all set up behind everybody. And I guess during our set, Nico had come up to like check his drums and whatever and was kind of playing around a little bit. And I didn't even hear him like, you know, because we're loud and we're doing our thing. But I guess he felt a little bad that he was making racket while we were playing. And they all have these wristbands that they wear with their names on it. So he sent his drum tech over after we were done to give me a pair of his wristbands and be like, hey, I'm sorry if it was distracting. I just was just trying to work through something or whatever. And I was like, oh, God, that's the coolest thing ever. That's great, man. I just uh, that's awesome. I I miss touring a lot. Uh, All these stories are bringing it all back to me. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, okay. so I want to know then uh, you were you were doing the saves the day thing that was kind of coming to an end. Uh, how did the offspring come about? Because I mean, that's saves the day is a big band face to face is a big band. Offspring is on a whole other level. Yeah. The, the offspring thing came up. It was, you know, it was an interesting time for me because I was really like the saves the day thing took a lot out of me. And when I finally just couldn't do it anymore and I just had to quit, I told my wife, I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Like I'm going to, you know, I was going to be like a paramedic or go work at Costco or I didn't care. I was like, I just, I can't go through this again. Like it's too, it's too much emotionally and personally to get invested in this music and do this stuff. Cause when I quit, we had just finished writing a record and that they went and had to and recorded without me. Um, because I was like, I can't be here anymore. This it's toxic for me. It's toxic for my family. Like I'm out and I didn't want to play music anymore. So I just, you know, I called all my endorsers and I'd let them know, okay, before you read it somewhere else, I quit the band. I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I just wanted you to know for me and everybody was cool about it. And, um, so I didn't do anything for a couple months and I got called for this other pretty big band. And I was like, oh, all right, this is awesome. It's metal. Like I want to, I want to do that. I'm going to play metal. And then my buddy called me who um, knows everybody in the industry and was like, Hey, you're not, you're not going to join that band. Forget it. He's like, you just left a crazy band and that situation is no better. Don't do it. And I was like, all right, fine. And at the same time, um, saves today's business managers were friends with offsprings management. And so they called me and said, Hey, offspring is looking for a drummer. And I was just like, I don't want to play punk rock anymore. I can't, I can't handle this. No. And so I didn't do anything about it. I just kind of let it go. And, and it came around again. Um, my, uh, my rep at Zildjian was, knew their camp really well. And so she had recommended my name. So then, you know, it came around again and they called and, and then through a, a different channel. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't think so. Third time it came around, my wife was like, Hey, why don't you just go and meet them? Like, She's like, I know you're, she's probably sick of me pouting (laughs) and not knowing what to do, but she's like, you don't like anything that's coming along, but this keeps coming back. And I was like, I don't want to play punk rock. And she's like, well, you don't know these guys. And I'd never met them. I had no idea of anything about them. Um, She's like, why don't you go and get the job and then decide if you want it or not? Uh, And still to me, like some of the smartest advice anyone's ever given me. And she's, she's cool like that. She's always full of great advice. But so I went down there and, you know, went through the audition process and they're, you know, they're such fantastic people. And the fact that the three of them have been together this entire time and they were really, I appreciated that they were leaving no stone unturned looking for drummers. Cause I went on four separate auditions 
And, you know, each time I went in, I had a new set of songs to play, but I would hear other people while I was waiting in there playing like the first two songs or the second batch of songs. And, you know, by the time I'm on the third batch and I was like, oh, all right, these guys are really, you know, they're serious. Like they want to find the right person. They're not just like, whatever, we just need someone. So, you know, once I got the gig, I was like, yeah, I like these guys. I like, obviously musically it made sense. And, uh, it's been really like the best experience I've ever had. I've been with them for, this is my 12th year now. And they're, they're awesome guys. Like musically we click, we're great friends. They're fantastic people to be on tour with. Cause you know how it is. Yeah. Your, your touring family, some years you will see more than your real family. And it's really hard if you don't like them. Well, yeah, if you're if you're not getting along and it's not like, you know, a positive place to be, then tour can be the worst thing in the world. I say on the bio, the bio to this podcast, I talk to people about, you know, living their dream, being on tour, but also commiserating about how it's sometimes it's a nightmare. Yeah. And I'd been through that and I didn't I didn't want that. But, you know, these guys are great. And, uh, you know, they they love my wife and my daughters like everybody you know, it's a really good situation. It's been great for me. And I'm grateful to my wife for making me go and, and give it a look and, and, you know, try something, even though I didn't feel like doing it. And I, I was burnt, so burnt out still from the previous thing, but it, um, obviously it's, it's worked out great. It was it completely different, like the way that they tour as opposed to like face to face or saves the day, just because of the level that they've achieved over the years. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a completely different world in in the best sense of, you know, face to face and saves a day. We would go on tours that were 10 weeks long, like you got on the bus, you picked your bunk. That was your home for the next almost three months. I've done that many times, man. <laughs> Grind, grinding it out across America or wherever else. Yeah. And, you know, that was fine when I was young and I didn't have kids and stuff. And but now it's like. You know, if we're going to go out on a long run, like I'm able to bring my family out and spend time with them. And um, and we don't usually do more than like a month without coming home because everybody has family and and everybody feels strongly about that. And so it's it's really it's a nice schedule that we're allowed to have due to the success that they've had. You know, they can kind of they can call their own shots and set things up how however they're comfortable. And so for me, it's it's just been a godsend of. You know, I get time with my family. I enjoy the band that I'm in. Like, you know, it's it's just been a great experience for me. What was it like? You've talked a lot about uh, the engineer. What was the guy's name on Ignorance is Bliss? I, I space his name. Ed Lindman. Yeah. You've talked a lot about him and how great the experience was with him. Uh, you guys recorded Days Gone By with Bob Rock, you know, who everybody knows from the Metallica documentary. How was it working with Bob? Because, I mean, he just seems like. He seems like a great guy, but he seems like he means business in the studio. He does. He does. And, um, you know, and a lot of days go by um, was already like some of those songs were already had been worked on with Bob before I got there. And like Josh Freeze did a lot of work on that record just because it had already been in the pipeline. So this new record that we're working on now is really the first one that I'm um, playing on the whole record, which is great. So we we've had a really good year this year, me and Bob. Like I learned so much from him every time I go in the studio there and he's, he's just kind of full of knowledge and he, he doesn't sit there spouting off about it. You got to drag it out of him. But if you get him talking, there's, there's some really, really great stories in there and just his approach to 
how the drums should sound and how how they're played um is really really cool i've i've learned a ton from from him and he kind of had to break me a little bit when we got in there because i hit so hard live like i'm so used to that's how we play on tour um that we got in the studio and i was just killing the drums and it you know it didn't sound good it didn't feel good and so he he broke me down to where i'm playing really quiet and restrained but everything flows everything feels right and so it's it's nice like he's given me this whole other side of my playing where i can shift gears like live i'm still you know hitting like an 800 pound gorilla but in the studio i can shift right over into oh now we're playing for recording and i don't feel like i ever had that finesse before um so it's been really really a great experience working with him and i like i said i learn a lot every time that we're in the studio together I think if I if I met Bob, I would just fanboy out too much. I'd be asking about Metallica. Did you guys talk about Metallica at all like when they recorded the Black Album? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we talk about that stuff. I mean, he he keeps bringing in like he likes that drum set that they used on that record. So we've been using that exact drum set a lot this year, and uh, it's just cool to have that history of like, oh man, this this whole drum set was on that album. This was on that song that I love, or this is you know. And so I'll ask him a lot about like sounds and. You know, he's got a particular way that he goes about miking the drums and, you know, he definitely has that Bob Rock drum sound. And uh, but he's just really he's cool. He's really mellow. Um, Like he's never gets worked up over anything, but you'll you can tell if he doesn't like what you're doing because he'll be kind of like not quite knowing what to say, just sort of like you know, well, what, what else you got? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, uh, I think at first that was really unnerving for me. Um, but you know, we've spent a lot of time together in the studio now and, and I, I think I understand him and he understands me and like, we have a really, it's, I look forward to every time I'm going in there. Cause I'm like, well, I'm going to learn something new again from Bob this time. So can you tell me a little bit about in 2011, I read that you played five shows with Devo. How did that go? Yeah, that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, Again, my buddy that had warned me against playing with the metal band before I joined Offspring, he's like, he's guitar tech to the stars and he knows everyone. And and we we were actually in Nashville visiting to see if we wanted to move here. And he called me up and said, hey, I'm in, I don't remember where he was, somewhere in Europe, I think, with um, his buddy who was Devo's production manager. And he was lamenting like, we have these shows, like we got a couple weeks of shows coming up and we have no drummer for them because Josh Freeze is their normal main drummer. And then Jeff Friedel, who is a uh, place for perfect circle. Um, he was, jo- he was Devo's backup guy. And at the time Josh was playing with Weezer and perfect circle also had shows booked and Devo also had shows booked. So Josh had to do the Weezer thing and so he kicked the perfect circle gig over to Jeff and then Devo was just kind of left hanging. And so my buddy Takumi was like, Oh, you know, his, his guy's like, Oh, we don't have a drummer. We, get, we might have to cancel these shows. And he's like, Oh, Pete will do it. Call Pete. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah. So I get this call like, Hey, do you want to play with Devo next month? And was like, yes, yes, I do. Yeah. That would be amazing. So it was just really cool. I had about a month to, to prepare and get everything together, but, uh, they were so much fun. I I love them. They're they're weird and quirky, but awesome. Like the energy they had on stage 
was it was amazing like i felt like the hair standing up on the back of my neck the whole time because it kind of never knew it was going to happen and a, a lot of stuff was very it was a different style for me for sure but just even the costumes and the masks and the changes and stuff and we they pl always play in front of these giant video screens and so i'm on a click and because everything is synced up with the video screens and like so the first six songs was like one long track as like so once the show starts like it's about 25 minutes before we stop and um and then costume changes and and this and that so it was a really really cool experience like i love those guys they were so much fun and actually they called me this summer because they hadn't been doing much for a while and the bass player called jerry and he said hey we've got a show in oakland at the end of june can you do it and i was like we offspring was in europe we were going to be in europe at the time and we still had like a week of shows left and i looked to see if like oh is there a day off or do we have a couple days off can i fly back and do it because i would have moved to earth to be able to go play with them again and it just couldn't be done. Like we had a show on the day they had a show and I was like, ah, oh, I can't do it. And so, but they ended up getting Fred Armisen to play drums for that show. Wow. That's just good backup, I guess. Pretty cool. Yeah. I'm like, all right, all right. If it can't be me, like at least that's cool. But those, those guys were awesome. Still one of the coolest experiences. I remember calling my wife after the rehearsal that I had the first time I played with them. And I was like, I was just sitting there and we were playing Whip It. And I was like, I'm playing Whip It with Devo. Like, this is nuts. This is nuts. My, my son, I have a two and a half year old son and he loves uh, Yo Gabba Gabba. And Mark's been on, been on there a couple of times. So it's just funny because I, I love Devo as well. But just to see my two and a half year old watching him on a kid's show is really, really cool. Yeah, that was the cool thing because my youngest daughter was really into Yo Gabba Gabba at the time that I played with them. I mean, she was three and a half. And so when she met Mark, like she knew who he was and, uh, and she was, you know, she could be reserved at the time in three and a half. You don't necessarily just go talking to people, but she was fine talking with him. And he's like, Oh, you like the show. I'm always looking for new things to draw. What should I draw next? And she was like, you should draw the moon and the sun. And like very adamant, like, this is what you should draw. And he was like, that's great. The moon and the sun, they're not usually together. That, that. <laughs> wonderful and i don't know that they ever got to doing it in an episode because they, they kind of stopped making the episodes after that but it was really sweet that like she got to meet the guy from her favorite tv show that's awesome man that, that's such a good story well yeah, i tell you what I've, i feel like i've taken a lot of your time today i only have a couple more questions now uh being that this is called that one time on tour do you have any little tidbits or nuggets like a, a tour story that you remember that just sticks out that you could tell us yeah, I mean, you know how it goes. There's always some kind of weird thing that happens every tour. But a couple of years ago, we were with Offspring. We went to Russia and we spent about three weeks there in the dead of winter. And we went not just like, you know, Moscow, St. Petersburg. We were in Siberia. Like we went up north and we, you know, we played some shows like you would walk out. Like we had to take off on an airplane and it's blizzard snowing out and there's like, three feet of snow on the ground and you just had to walk out on the tarmac through three feet of snow, hop on the plane. And it was going to take off in that. Jeez, man. It's like, all right. But one night we had to take a train. Um, and we, and we had a security guy who was Russian with us to kind of help translate, but also like he knows how things go over there. So we all, the band and crew get on this train and, and everybody's hanging out 
And one of the conductors or the train workers comes by and notices all of us and decides to start asking for everyone's passports, like demanding not just to see them, but that we give them to him. And we're all just looking at the tour manager like, hey, what's going on? He's like, hold on, don't get anything out. And all of a sudden, our security guy gets in this dude's face and just starts screaming at him in Russian. And they're having this huge argument, like the train hasn't even left yet. Like, we're just like, are we leaving? Are we staying? And the guy leaves super pissed. And the security guy turns around and and he kind of had broken English, but he was basically saying don't give anyone your passport. Like they, they see a group of Americans here. They're going to take all your passports and then shake you down. Like you'll have to pay them to get them back. Um, he's like, we're not doing it. And, and the guy kept coming back up through, cause we had like one whole train car for all of us. And so our security guy stood out in the hallway the whole night, keeping an eye. And every time this guy came by, he yelled at him to get out of there again because the dude kept coming back. And we were like, damn, like, it was that was kind of gnarly. So yeah, that whole trip was full of like weird, weird stuff like that. But that that train ride was was kind of intense. I've done some stuff in you know Eastern Europe and some things you know just normal Moscow, Saint Petersburg, like you said, like Vladimir. But yeah, I've never been up there. I just I can't imagine. What were the shows like? Did a lot of people come out? Yeah, the shows were great. That's the thing. Like I love going there. We've been to Russia probably three or four times since I've been in the band and. The shows are always amazing. Like the people are so incredibly kind and they just love music and they're just so excited for it. But the shows are always amazing. It's And you're seeing like just this whole other side of the world that you would never know about. Do you have like maybe a favorite country that you visited while touring? I mean, I mean, I know that's a hard question. I ask that every every guest I have because I'm a I'm a big traveler. I've been everywhere and I just. I don't know. I just I always like to see what people think is cool. Like what's like the maybe the best place that you guys play or the best place you've been just on your own on like a trip. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like people will ask you that a lot, too, when they find out you're in a band and whatever. I, I love going to Japan. I, I think the culture there and the food and the people are just so genuine and so sweet and amazing that every time we can go there. I love it. I took my family all um, a couple of years ago. They all came over with me and we went like a week early and, and then we stayed a little later and, you know, went all through Tokyo and Osaka and then up to Kyoto. And it was just such a nice experience to see my kids seeing like this other part of the world that they'd never been exposed to. And, you know, nobody's speaking English and, and uh, all the food is different. And it was really cool to see them take that in and appreciate it. And uh, so every time we go to Japan is, is really special for me. Um, and I also love Australia, too. It's, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum. Everyone's speaking English, but they're all just having such a good time there. Like Australia crowds are so they're fired up and they're partying and they're, you know, it's just such a beautiful country or continent. I mean, every city over there is amazing and it's so spread out. You have to fly from every every show. Yeah. My uh, the singer of the Atari's uh, one time in Australia, he he, he doesn't fly very well. <laughs> so one time in Australia, he actually rented a car and made like the, you know, 20 hour trips or whatever between cities because he didn't want to be he didn't want to fly. Yeah, I don't so know. He got it was a little crazy. <laughs> the other ones are pretty short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the flights are pretty short, but the drives are really long. It's like being up in Canada. I remember the first time I toured in Canada. It's like, oh, so we play here and then we have a 25 hour drive to the next city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of that stuff. 
we used to do a ton of those with face to face. Like we would spend a month in Canada and you just have those long drives where you're looking over the driver's shoulder and like the whole road is just snow and there's tire tracks. I remember one time we we're driving through a really gnarly blizzard up there and, but we had a super long drive. We had to get there and I'm talking to the driver. I'm like, well, you can't even see where you're going. He's like, well, I just follow the tire tracks. <laughs> I'm like, well, what if the person in front of you went over a cliff? Are we going to follow them over? And a couple minutes later, we got passed by a semi truck and he got that guy got on the CB and was like, what the hell are you guys doing? Get off the road. I just came from where you're going. You can't drive like get off at the next thing. So we had to get off and sit for the night. And we woke up, there was like eight feet of snow surrounding the bus. It felt like, you know, we had to dig ourselves out to keep going. I just always thought it was funny. It's like booking agents, you know, send us to Canada in the summertime. Don't send us there in February. Yeah, we did a we did a month there in November, which was just like, who the hell thought this was a good idea? Well, hey, man, Pete, I appreciate you so much for coming on the show. Uh, is the Offspring doing anything? I know you guys just got done doing a tour a while back with 311. Is there any plans coming up? Where can uh, the people come see you guys at? We are, let's see, we're in Mexico two weekends from now at a festival down there. And then the 26th of October, we'll be in uh, Huntington Beach at a big festival there. And uh, I forget who else is on the bill. Um, in November, we'll be back in the studio, hopefully finishing up the new record. And then in December, we're in Australia uh, doing a festival with Stone Sour and some other bands over there, which will be great. So it's, you know, we're, we just keep busy. Like we're, I think this record's taken a while because we're, we stay on tour and then we get in the studio when everybody can get it, get their time together, you know, like Bob's free and, and we're off tour. And, and so um, it'll be nice to, to get back in there again and, and get this done. But um, yeah, through December, that's that's what I got so far for shows, but no, no big long runs um, that I know of yet. We're just hoping to get this done. Cool. Well, hey, when the new record comes out, maybe you can come back and we can talk a little bit about it. That'd be great. I'd love it. Cool, man. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the show today, and uh, I hope you and your family have an excellent rest of the year, and I'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks. You too, man. Thanks for having me. Talk to you later, man. Bye. So there it was, my conversation with Pete Parada from The Offspring. Can't wait to have Pete back on the show for part two when The Offspring have their new record ready to go. Uh, next week on the show, I get to sit down with Emily Whitehurst, formerly Agent M of Tsunami Bomb, a great Kung Fu Records band. She is now doing this kind of solo project synth pop thing called Survival Guide. It's really, really good. And I can't wait to talk to her. It's going to be a lot of fun to sit down and chat with Emily. So come back for that next week. Before I get out of here, I do need to tell you guys about Muncie Music Center. It's a wonderful store. I work there. I teach guitar, ukulele, mandolin, banjo, everything with strings. I teach it. And they have everything that you need there as well if you're a musician. They've got, you know, band instruments, guitars, basses, amps, anything that you want. They have it. So check them out at 600 South Mulberry Street in Muncie, Indiana, or at MuncieMusic.com. I'm going to leave you guys with a couple songs from the bands that Pete was in and recorded with. I'm going to play Burden, which is off of Ignorance's Bliss by Face to Face. It's one of my favorite Face to Face songs. It's really, really cool. Uh, then I am going to play the Offspring song Dirty Magic. It's kind of the reimagined version from 2012. It was originally on one of their older albums that they redid with Pete. They did some extra vocals and whatnot. It's really cool. I'm going to play that. And then after that, I'm going to play In My Waking Life by Saves the Day. So thank you guys very much for coming back week in and week out. Please spread the word. Subscribe, rate, review, you know, help us 
us get to the next level. Couldn't do it without you guys, so thank you very much, and I'm going to go to sleep because, once again, I do this in the middle of the night, and I am under the weather, and I'm ready to go to sleep. So thanks a lot. We'll see you guys next week with Emily Whitehurst from Tsunami Bomb and Survival Guide. This is Chris signing off.
They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments. The ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember. The ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.